Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Does Cat ever learn how to really fight? How will the rat's nest handle becoming a guild-affiliated institution? And will Black ever get his knife back? I really, really hope not. How many pricey does it take to change a lantern's wick? A legion to conquer all the candle makers, a high lord to sell the wicks down south, and then we're taxed for being in the dark. Overheard in a lore tavern. Well, I have to say, beginning with our protagonist being not defeated but nearly so in a fight is uh, not an auspicious start to the actual story and yet simultaneously an extremely potent case of foreshadowing an extremely potent prelude we're getting all of her light motifs in this chapter i don't know if you noticed in fact but in the first paragraph alone we have a punch landing in her eye an auspicious body part for our heroine. She has a man circling her like a murder of crows. Even from the first in this novel, she has parallels with her later fate and where she's fighting an enemy greater than she is, that she cannot win a war of attrition against nor a direct battle, and where she is immediately considering moves that would be considered cheating if only she can get away with them. Which is pretty classic cat, you're very right. I do I do appreciate that. There are several pieces of this fight, yes, that are excellent foreshadowing. The crows being my favorite one. I don't know that every time the word crow comes up is, you know, an intentional warning about what's to come, but sometimes it just feels like it is, you know? If EE has written it, it cannot be a mistake. I don't think the man is capable of a typo. Speaking of, I will say it is interesting how the early chapters have far fewer typos than the later ones, almost as if our, as the audience, frantic begging for more written words by him led to maybe some rushing <laughs> as the story progressed. If I didn't miss any, the first of those typos is in the fifth or sixth paragraph, depending how you're counting. He went on the offensive the moment I have him an opening quintessential ee and i really felt at home rereading this absolutely absolutely there were there were a few here and there that definitely were just just the kind of typos we know and love but i think we've all grown to the point where we don't hold any typos against ee and they're just sort of part of the story part of the work maybe not the story this is a very meta tale from start to finish but i don't know that it goes quite so far as to include typos in the work as (laughs) <laughs> part of the narrative. 
unless I've really missed it. Not to take the same view of this story as some do of holy scriptures, but I'm certain that every typo in here is probably actually part of a much greater meta meta narrative. And if we can just learn how to interpret them properly, that's when we get the real story. If you take every letter that was mistakenly typed, or that was a typo, I suppose, and put them all in a string, and then have somebody read that and record it and play it backwards, it tells you, oh, I don't know what it would tell you, but I'm sure it'd be juicy. So anyway, I have to say, it's it's very quick that uh, Catherine, you know, these early these early chapters, Catherine isn't as aggressively witty as she becomes she hasn't had a lot of practice but still the first thing she speaks out loud is uh mocking her opponent's manhood so you know that's a just a great start while well on route to losing against him she's on brand no doubt about it and it's also the first thing she says out loud in fact the very first thing the first sentence is talking about how small she is I I feel that Kat is a little concerned about her height, and that really never goes away. Admittedly, at this point, she might have had some growing left, she might have told herself. True, although she attains a name pretty quickly, and those tend to get you fairly stuck physically. Do you think Kat was going to grow anymore? I'm sure she would have... She would have put on maybe a little muscle or something as she got a little older based on her, her career path, but that's about it. Throughout the entire story, Kat doesn't really change physically so much other than injuries. And when she kind of is not physical in the same way any longer temporarily. But through the whole thing, she just kind of ages as a good aged cheese like a parmesan she just slowly hardens and shrinks ever so much into herself and like a good parmesan she becomes very sharp and salty indeed (laughs) i will say it is odd to be this early in the story and having cat swear by the radiant heavens as opposed to something far more foul well that struck me as well foul is a tough word Far more dark, maybe. She will do this again in the next chapter. And I'm hoping that that's the last of it, because it unsettles me deeply. I really do look forward to, now that I know what to look for, paying attention to as her swearing changes from Radiant Heavens or Gods Above or what have you into swearing by the gods below before switching again to her patrons later on her matrons rather what i'm wondering is are the gods above the only deities she fails to blaspheme while in service to i don't know that she ever is truly in service to the gods above there's a reference later on either in this or the next chapter where she kind of offhandedly mentions if i had been to the temple more often maybe i would know so I, I have a feeling that she understands that culturally she is, uh, you know, in a good kingdom or was before the conquest. But I think that's about the extent of her allegiance, which is honestly about how she goes for the gods below as well. <laughs> that is this chapter. Okay. Maybe if I'd gone to the House of Light more often, I would have let him go to prison. But even with her uncanny early adherence to goodness, or at least nominal allegiance to nominal alliance with nominal eh they're the regional gods she does remain very much the same girl she is the same woman she becomes throughout the story in this very fight she exhibited some of the traits we see later but then we learn that even to get to this point she uses some patented catherine failure way to the top strategies such as throwing a fight to lose in order to increase her odds for her coming win or pricking an opponent into action until the point that he hits like a horse's kick side note very callowin of her to notice that she's 
sacrificing her own body and her own health and her own victories in order to claim the victories she deems necessary. And the victory that she deems necessary with the throne fight isn't just make people underestimate her so she can win more easily. No, no, no. It's so that she can make more money gambling in this underground gambling pit fighting den. It's just perfect. Just the, the uh, put a bow on that for her. That's ideal. I'm honestly shocked that there's never a portion of the story where she finds or founds a similar fight ring amongst the legions and participates in disguise. Yeah, the closest she gets to doing something like that is being semi-involved in stage performances in disguise, kind of. And that's that really is too bad. Really a missed opportunity for Kat there. I know that we agree fully and without a trace of humor, that EE is incapable of error and even the typos have deeper meaning, should we have the wisdom to look into them. But I did notice something that, frankly, jokes aside, could be explained away, could be seen as totally valid, and I don't mean to attack. But when she talks about Booker, a name that, if you ask me, sounds very goblin just by the suffix, but she says that, I'd thought Booker was a name... Which, okay, I can see how that happens. It is a title-sounding thing. Might actually be a title, might actually be her name. But later on, when she's in the tavern, in the rat's nest with the sergeant, she writes that the name she dropped caught my attention, though. Well, name, if you want it to be accurate. Black Knight. I knew he was still alive and up to no good somewhere in the Empire. But the existence of people with names had never felt quite real to me. And while it's perfectly possible to encounter something, and even though you don't believe it's real, have a twinge of recognition that it sounds like it. If I were in a forest and saw a glimpse of white trotting between the trees, maybe I'd think, oh, it's a magical unicorn. Though I believe firmly that Ronald Reagan did, in fact, take them all out as part of his scheme to remove all joy from America. But to say I barely feel like names are real and, oh, when I heard of Booker, some underground fight ring bigwig, but in the scheme of things, a nobody, and I thought it was a name, it seems like a bit of a reach. I can see that going one of two ways. First of all, it could be a reinforcement for her later skepticism when she hears about Booker and thinks to herself, oh, a role, a name, and then meets Booker and realizes, never mind. Of course, never mind. Names aren't really a reality in my world. So that, you know, that that realization could have been reinforcement for for what she says later. But the other side of things is when I was younger, I met in real life at just out and about professional athlete, uh, an NBA player and came away from it thinking and probably saying it still doesn't feel real that a human being can be that tall and unbelievably athletic. And you know, it's sort of this larger than life how is that real even after having met the person in real life and you know shaking their hand and all of those things you can be aware that something is real and still they it doesn't feel real because it's so outside your day-to-day experience and so i think cat's more leaning into that second one but i think the first thing could also play into it well argued i concede the point ee is without flaw all good i mean if we have to go through this with one of us apparently me, since we have a skeptic in our midst that I wasn't aware of, constantly having to put in the work to defend this author from the other. I suppose that's okay. I don't know where I get this feeling, but I suppose that if you have two beings almost above the story, able to see the narrative, taking the long view of things, it would only be right to have one be on the side of EE and one against, a sort of advocate for good and advocate for evil. Uh, Something, something intercessor. I can't believe you just sort of unilaterally assigned me the role of the bard. I'm That was very, very <laughs> rude. <laughs> you fell right into my trap. Ah, classic. Wait a minute, but I'm supposed to be the one laying traps. It looks like you have been hoisted by your own narrative. It does look like it. Uh, right before Booker shows up, Cat runs into a, an orc and... I have to say, this little paragraph that shows up in here very much feels like a, I don't know, it doesn't feel necessary in as much, except in as much as it's 
one, the brief sentence about the legions don't do illegal things, which is just, oh, cat. Oh, cat. Adorable. Um, and also as a early setup for how big and strong orcs are, <laughs> it's it just... It feels not out of place, but oddly placed that real early on, there's just cat like, oh, and by the way, orcs are really strong and tough. And also, this is something that apparently I'd forgotten. They have double rows of teeth. I noticed that as well. They always had such toothy smiles or toothy maw Mm -hmm. expressions, but double rows. Good for them. The better for chewing up meat, I suppose. I wonder what they eat. Probably nothing worth noting. Knives, apparently. That's what I'm gathering from that paragraph and the chapter title. It's all play. It's a. It's all a hint onto <laughs> orc diets. Catherine better be so careful with Black's knife if orcs are around. True. I thought, however, reading the same paragraph as we read the story, we encounter orcs as people first orc is just a descriptor like man or woman might be but here the orc is encountered as an orc first and as a legionary really second which is the only personality he needs to have because he functions as an apparition of the state's monopoly on violence in an illegal extra state violence place but the orc slaps her on the back and then we learn Double row of pristine fangs, turning into what was supposed to be a grin. She extricates herself. And then, the orcs were taller and more broadly built than humans, generally speaking, and their thick greenish skin made them damnably hard to put down. Good on catch, already trying to figure out how to kill everybody she meets. Anybody stupid enough to tangle with 300 pounds of trained killer deserved whatever was coming to them. Don't tell her what she's going to do with an ogre shortly, but... Shortly? (laughs) It's in book one, and there are 12 chapters in this. Yeah, you're right. Times two plus four. But considering that one of the most adorable, cuddly, and friendly people we ever meet, through my extremely rose-colored glasses, is an orc, and Kat's best friend, seeing one portrayed as, oh, he is the big creature, is interesting to me. We learn about orcs as orcs rather than we learn about people who are orcs. But that's, of course, Kat's view. Right. Orcs are foreign to Callum. Right, exactly. And I, I was thinking, uh, we've talked a lot off-air about, well, not a lot, a few times, about how long Knife is, um, how the first chapter is noticeably longer than nearly any other chapter in the whole work. Um, and a big part of that is it's kind of cramming the entire classic story arc of going from just living my life into the big new world of adventure really all into one chapter and so it, there there's a lot of backstory stuff like we we learn from cat her changing opinions and her changing understanding of the world retroactively in many cases or as new things are revealed to her but there's also a lot in this first chapter that is very clearly here is how i understand the world here is how cat is viewing the world here is where she is unsure about things here's the things that she is absolutely sure about and wrong about and it does all of that very quickly comparatively speaking for how long things like this really what i'm saying is that if knife had been written four or five years from this point it would have been seven or eight chapters of this length (laughs) as ee you know really found his footing and how how long-winded long-winded is the wrong word how detailed things could get and so, you know, setting up with just Kat talking about an orc as a scary thing with the legions is really, really cool considering how many chapters, a dozen chapters from now, less, she's competing against uh, an orc that's her, that becomes one of her closest friends. And she's, she's starting to form friendships with orcs and goblins who are, as you were pointing out, people first and then species second or third or fourth or whatever it is. To a degree, goblins are just goblins, but individual representatives of goblinhood. And that's very much intentional on the goblins' part, I think. So it's a little different. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're well aware of their reputation, and they're well aware of what they need to do to uphold it. And I think they're happy to. Now, are you familiar with Campbell's monomyth? The 17 stages of the hero's journey? 
familiar is a strong word. You say this condenses a lot into one chapter, and I think it might be interesting to look at that. The first few stages of the monomyth are the call to adventure, followed by the refusal to the call. The hero receives the call and refuses the call. Stage three is supernatural aid. Stage four, crossing the threshold. And stage five, the belly of the whale. It's a death and rebirth. I don't think we've reached belly of the whale by any means, but there's certainly a call to adventure in this section. There's a call to adventure as at the end of the chapter, she is taken demi-willingly, at least briefly, if not under the wing, then at least under the aegis of Amadeus. And the refusal to the call always lingers in her, but I think that doesn't apply too heavily to Kat, and it doesn't always happen. The monomyth isn't scientific, deterministic. Yeah, thing. it's it's a it's a trope, a very powerful and very useful trope, and it's more frequent than we're aware of. I think a lot of times, but I think Kat, I think by the very nature of practical guide, Kat sidesteps or lampshades or just ignores a good chunk of it especially the cyclical nature of it just by not being a hero actually <laughs> and also just because that's the kind of story it is it is it's a story that unbelievably heavily leans on tropes because that's they're they're within the universe while at the same time avoiding a lot of them because certain characters are aware of those tropes and play them off each other to not let them affect things i mean specifically the two characters that are the most important so far cat and black like that's that's their whole thing and you know that'll we'll discuss that more next week when black starts his mentorship but i think i don't know i also think that if if we were trying to loosely slap this on here the refusal is such a I find it hard to find anything in here that even comes close to the refusal of the call from Kat. And I find it hard to nail down the point where the call would occur. Sure, Black leads her out of the alley. That is potentially the call. When Black invites her to the banquet, that's potentially the call. When she's pulled into official mentorship or into the college or into the, you know, there, there's many many steps where you could say this is the call to adventure and everything prior to that was was sort of just background when there's when there's this long of a story sometimes i think it's pretty easy to or pretty hard to nail down a specific moment i guess is what i'm saying Catherine has no problem with direction no problem with goal she from the from well before the first for near 16 years now and I do mean near 16 years because I know she was one very angry and dedicated infant. But she has always been oriented against imperial rule of Callow. She cats the spirit of Callow, right? She despises what has been done to her people and is willing to become the enemy to lift that yoke. And that means that she doesn't have an introduction to the general path, but rather if we want to fit into the monomythic mold, which I do because I can milk this for material in the coming weeks, I think it's the moment at the alley when she has the choice to either allow the status quo to remain or to, for once in an extremely mortal way, put herself on the line to achieve the dream. It's not just risking broken bones, risking the rage of the matron, which I think is an interesting word at this point, of the orphanage, but she knows what could befall her if she's on the wrong side of the guards because she knows what the guards are. And she chooses to act anyway. And of course, without the apparition of Black, that would be the end of the story, but that's when she takes the fate of a piece of callow, one girl, in her hands for the first time, and where she decides to deal in violence in order to restore peace to a life oh, devoid of it and at risk of far worse devastation. I can get down with that. I think if we're going to um, not adopt, but maybe maybe come alongside and 
make passing comments and winks toward the hero's journey. I think I can get on board with that moment being the call. Even if the catalyst of the call is a guard who explicitly says, these aren't the days for heroes. What's the actual line here? Um, these aren't days for playing hero. Directly before the intervention of the, the mentor figure, the, it, it's... It's pretty explicit. The, I, I do really enjoy the the guard just stepping up and saying that. <laughs> Probably with a lot of things in mind, race-related, only to have the sort of peak of that institution roll up and <laughs> really put his whole put his whole business to a stop. He saved the day, and he didn't play hero. That's very true. There was no trace of heroism in that salvation. And when he arrives, this is the first time Black is on screen outside of the prologue, of course, uh, where he, he's got some lines. But the first time in the story proper that Black speaks is imparting that level of meta-knowledge, meta-wisdom to a random, I was about to say no name, but we're given his name, to a guard in an alleyway, you know, just shows up and immediately don't gloat before your business is done, basically. and. I just, I really appreciate that. I mean, honestly, Black is the ideal teacher at all times, in all places. He is working to teach Cat a lesson. He has all, he's already decided that he will try apprenticeship with her if things proceed accordingly. And he's not wasting a moment. I am entirely sure that's directly for her benefit. Also, Black's a drama queen. Well, he is. And mentioning that that is directly for Catherine's benefit, I think that's I think that's really worth diving into, that idea. But I think based on ha- what happens in the next chapter, that'll be a, a bigger discussion for next week. Um, something I had flagged to talk about for the next chapter. But just briefly here that so much of what he does is very, very clearly directed at Kat, even if she's not the who he's talking to or about, or even if he, she seems to be being ignored in the moment. It's just so much of what he's doing is Kat-focused at this point. We've gone down a side path of great value, and I'm glad we have. But before we return from this bout of tu- tourism, I'd just like to note, I took a quick inventory of things we're introduced to in this chapter uh we see our first orc we see our first goblin our first goblin who is just who cat introduces so the fact that cat says it's hard to tell the goblin's gender underneath all that wrinkled green skin is just come on cat she gets better but yeah that's a rough beginning though also if goblins had only previously been working against you they are the stuff of nightmares and I would not blame anyone for viewing them as monsters and as as compilations of traits rather than anything else. Fair enough. But come on, Kat. Uh, go ahead with your list. I would love to hear what else you had. Yes, our first orc, our first goblin, the first mention of the duchy up north. First mention of a number of places, indeed. But we hear of the empress for the first time. Not by name in this chapter, just the Empress, no dread. We hear about the governorship system. We see that healing is something that is within the realm of the priests, and perhaps ideally in the realm of the priests, but we see it also exists in the hands of mages, which is a very vital piece of world building since, in, at the very least, in a post Gygaxian world where Dungeons and Dragons is a great influence on all fantasy, whether or not you have a direct connection to it. The idea that mages, as opposed to priests, that in D&D terms, the arcane rather than divine, can heal is a very important detail. We do get, on the lighter side of things, we do get a fist clench, not a finger clench, but a fist clench, which is pretty close. Um, which I, I feel like is very important to mention. Vital. I do want to say that just one thing that I thought was very funny, they got a, an actual, maybe not a laugh, but pretty close to it out of me, was when the captain, Kat's friend, uh, Abella, perhaps? Sergeant? Yes, was 
talking about meeting the warlock, Kat's response internally was to bemoan the fact that Precy liked to tack on fancy titles to everything. When Kat later acquires titles like Duchess of Moonless Nights and the Queen of Lost and Found. <laughs> I don't know why you would accuse the Black Queen, first under the night, of compromising on her principles and allowing herself to accrue the very titles she bemoans. To be fair, Sovereign of the Red Skies is a little extra in the best of ways. That That's the kind of title that you aspire to. That's the kind of title that Wakesa deserves to have. Oh, absolutely. He is the single greatest character in this series, tied with very many others. And one step below Kairos. Naturally. I do appreciate that she drops the whatever that was supposed to mean, leaving the reader to, you know, on a first read-through, also wonder, and the reveal later on that much sweeter for it. Sovereign of the Red Skies, that's probably just, to quote Kat from slightly earlier, ceremonial clap trap. Nothing real. You could write it off. You shouldn't write it off. The the discussion with the sergeant and also the previous run-in with the orc that bet on her, and this is next chapter, but Kat discussing the legions putting down riots and uh, all of these things. It's interesting for as patriotic, I suppose, as Kat is, as, as much as she's loyal to Callow, or interested in protecting Callow's nationalist. Interested in protecting Callow's people, yeah. It's less about the state and more about the people. Um, she's already very good at the nuance, at the recognition that the guards, the soldiers, the legions even, are people and that they aren't just faceless enemies of everything forever. You know, there, there's there's an understanding that, yeah, I mean, Kat, Kat's, Kat's displaying her trademark to uh, steal directly from the title, practicality here, her, her pragmatism in the face of being, you know, a colonized territory. So I, I think that's that's great that her that that aspect of her character shows up pretty much immediately and never changes. She gets sentimental, sure, but she's she's pragmatic to her core, even as a fifteen-year-old, <laughs> a sixteen-year-old, near sixteen. I think that's really one of the great strengths of this introduction. We see Kat's complaints and concerns about the Empire with both her emotional, emotionally grounded hatred towards the Empire, this argument based on this is not who should rule us, we should be our own people, which alone isn't much of an argument, uh, though I would support it. But we see contradictions in that we see that it's a complex factor local guards are monstrous and predatory and the legionaries are friendly they're customers they are peacekeepers really even at the point of the illegal pit fight the orc comes over to clap her on the back he's jovial with all of his rows of teeth <laughs> and not only not only jovial and friendly and all of that, but it, it's surprising to her that a legionary would be doing something illegal. Because they are paragons of the law, Catherine. <laughs> the savior in this is, of course, the greatest monster of the age. And I don't say that from Catherine's perspective. I say that objectively. He is the greatest monster of the age. The only greater monster in existence is... I correct myself now. He's the greatest monster of the day. Uh, there is a greater monster of the age, of course, and we'll get to him in the latter books, but this is Black's day, and everything in the story is the slow turning of the gears and the shifting of the levers of his plot. And he appears here as Savior, where we also know him to be the damning conqueror himself as well. Kat talks about how terrible things are for so many people. There is a powerful image she gives of people huddling into warehouses who have lost everything, people who were made refugees in their own homes, in their own hometown, a theme which continues throughout the series. Refugees remain vital during heiresses' pretensions. 
during the final war, absolutely. Refugees are always a key factor. What do we do with refugees on the banks of the river? How are we going to cope with people who have need? And it's introduced already. We see that horrible thing that she blames the imperial governorship for. And yet she's from the imperial orphanage. And that means she has had an education. She knows her numbers and her letters, which is an immense leg up. They can tutor the children of nobles with that education. So we see this balance of benefit and cost in a real complex tapestry. And we see Kat embrace her stubborn, Callowin, grudge-embracing soul and say, we have been wronged and I will right this wrong. If I have to do wrong, I will do wrong right. This is not related to most of what you said, but very early on when you said the greatest monster of the age, interesting pronoun use. Uh, I, uh, well, we'll have to see if uh, if we if that pronoun changes on who you think the greatest monster of the age is as we near the end of the story again, you know, twelve years from now. But uh, as for for everything else, yeah, it, the grudge side of things, the ancestral grudge, since Pat was five years in the future when the conquest happened, is interesting in that it colors Kat's viewpoint but doesn't fully inform it or you know it informs her viewpoint but it doesn't control it she's like you said comparing the the cost and benefits and the grudge does weigh in she's not fully outside of that but it is a lot of fun seeing what things weigh on the scales for early cat you know not having not having a personal stake in things or a relational stake in things yet nothing is nothing's affected by that she doesn't have close friends or family or anything like that and so there's that national pride a bit that that takes that place and that is one of the things i really want to pay attention to going forward on this reread is the places where cat's paradigm changes to see what that looks like to see what to see where those shifts happen and, and at what point they begin and where they they get to where they end up because looking back after having read it we're aware of those changes we're aware of you know cat grew up and had all these different things that but it's refreshing to see her early viewpoints and uh it's exciting to be able to see those transitions and to see what stays the same which is most things because cat is if nothing else incredibly stubborn though some things do change severely in the tavern scene as well when the chance to hear about a calamity is upon her she has a hope that it will be ranger because quote i always liked the stories about her best <laughs> end of commentary yeah i had written down almost that exact quote and also didn't have any commentary past it because uh, it speaks for itself pretty well Catherine describes herself in this story. When she reaches the tavern and she cleans herself up, she uses the polished copper plate hung up on the wall to make sure there was no blood showing on her face. And then we get a description of her. She describes herself and Erotic Erata, a male author, then describes a person, describes a woman in first person, which we have all seen go deeply awry. And... I have to say, starting off on a little shaky ground with, I'd never been what you would call pretty, but then she doesn't say the word breasts once, and I am very here for that. A lot of men seem to think that's the first thing you need when you describe a woman, and we hear nothing about that in this whole chapter. When she describes other women... I was going to say, yes. That's her viewpoint. <laughs> but Kat really does love her curves. Or other people's curves, specifically. Or the things other people do with their hips. She sure does. I also have to say, correct me if I'm just wrong, but as a gay man, I do have to say, it sounds like what she says after she says she would never call herself pretty is then describing herself as hot. Strong chin, angular cheekbones. She says two, but come on. She's got a pointy face. I see what the Kingfisher Prince was interested in. Without getting too far into the weeds here on the details and trying to analyze based on, let's see, six words, whether or not Kat is conventionally attractive or not, what she's describing, I think, 
especially the chin bit. You know, I think she's aiming for a, I have a bit of masculine features and also a very hard face, not a traditionally feminine face, I suppose, is what she's trying to get at here without saying that explicitly and i i think that's something that that's sort of the feeling you get from cat anyway not in a traditional like ah she fights therefore manly but just you know that just that's just that just feels right for cat and so i i think it's just a brief description to give you a feeling there aren't too many really in-depth descriptions of characters faces you get the important features that you know uh, we get a lot of description about eyes specifically i mean Think about how frequently in this and the next chapter alone, Cat or Black is referred to only as the green-eyed man, you know, or you know, you get some some skin color things here or there to help differentiate places of origin, but that's that's really about it, oftentimes. Uh, and I I think that's just chin too strong, cheekbones too angular makes Cat's face one of the more well-described faces in the story, actually. And so, you know, you got to have a little bit of a feel for the character's look, if not in-depth description. Also, drenched urchin girl. I mean, that really ties it all together. Well, at that point, you've lost my interest. But <laughs> you have, however, stumbled into my trap. Oh. By which I mean, you talked about masculinity as opposed to femininity in the world of Practical Guide, or at the very least on the continent. One of the remarkable things about this story, if you ask me, is it's a fantasy story that uses the opportunity to fully embrace what some readers who insist on forcing compliance with a wretchedly idealized medieval era would call anachronistic dedication to radical equality of the sexes. In the first lines of this very chapter, she is a girl fighting a man, and the challenge there has, as presented, has nothing to do with gender. Women aren't worse than men. She's a girl, and he's a big guy, and she's a small girl. It's age and size that matter. When we see the legions, we see men and women in roughly equal number. When we think of the greatest swords person of the age, she's obviously a saint. When we see gender relations, including uh, sex and romance, there's no cultural difference between men and women uh, in any way other than when we talk about royal lineage, there's concern given to that, but it's still not even a question of validity. It's how are we going to manage a royal line in the face of a more difficult time naturally conceiving a child. It's not how will my reign be affected by this, it's what will happen to the dynasty, which are two very... That's a distinction that doesn't exist in real life often. Mm -hmm. And so those two things are often one and the same. If you don't have a dynasty, then your, your legitimacy is questioned. Here, that's not the case. And so that the one place does where gender seems to be cared about at all is a place where it's really more about where the baby's coming from though with one exception that i know of in the entire piece and that's or rather this complete equality past the point of even what i think it's typical in modern western society where there's a lot of deliberate equality in speech and a lot of self-correction even silent self-correction but so many of us have still been raised in a world where there are serious gender divides. Doctors are men and teachers are women or something like that. Though my father is a teacher, so checkmate. But when Kat has been taken to the safe house, she sees soldiers in heavy plates standing in front of it silently. Uh, not that I was complaining. Not even a full patrol of the city guard would feel up to tangling with those guys. Or girls, maybe? It was hard to tell with the way the helmets visor covered their faces and the plate obscured their body shape. And that was jarring to me in just, why would she go by an andronormative assumption? That's kind of out of universe. It it did feel weird. I, I also noticed that line. Um, and it's interesting. There are places later in the story where I seem to recall Kat specifically referring to groups of soldiers as men. When that happens, because it's not particularly frequently i chalk that up to just a real like life the real world usage of the language 
seeping in through sort of a casual tone because Kat, Kat's a very casual person. And so I get the feeling that when she's speaking, a lot of times EE is writing in a very casual tone, like just writing the words that make sense. And so I think sometimes idioms slip in like that, that aren't in universe. That one though is definitely more pronounced because there's a discussion on it, an immediate, well, actually, maybe they are women. I don't know if that's so much a correction on Kat's part because of assumptions based on role or lowercase role, or if it's just an assumption based on, frankly, people in heavy armor look to have a more masculine body shape because armor blockies makes you more blocky, you know? And I, it may just be that, in which case it's it's a little weird to be commented on so heavily, but not in-universe weird, if that makes sense. But this is EE's true only error. Oh, no. But I do like that about this world. I think it's very refreshing to have a world with great evil, great struggle, great things. And I don't have to see any of the oppressions that I or my loved ones have gone through because any of those issues. Even racism is far more special or national than... Right. There's that is weirdly dark skinned for a Callowin. And whatever. And even that, right. Race as we understand it in in this story is entirely a understanding of where a person is from. Um I think the biggest piece of human racism, in, intra human racism is against the um against black for being Dooney, and that's entirely there's a you know it's still tied it's still geographically tied it's well you know the dune you're from it, it's a poor poor area and so he's poor and that that's it and even that you know is more of a huh look how well he's doing for himself or something like that and most of the actual vitriol around it is coming from the nobles who are terrible anyway so <laughs> it's not really the nobles can say whatever they want do whatever they want it's no reflection on real world Right, exactly. They are evil, and not even black evil. They're cartoon evil. Right. I, I mean, expl- like that's their whole thing, <laughs> you know. So interspecies racism, which I, you know, speciesism, I suppose. There's a lot of that is more xenophobia. You know, it's it's nationalistic, like you said, than anything. The dwarves are bad because they represent a threat to Callow or Prace or Proser or whatever. The the goblins are bad because they are associated with Prace. Same with the orcs. The drow are bad because they kill a lot of humans, I guess. Drow are bad. Well, yeah. And orcs eat people. <laughs> That's fair. I, I guess there is that. <laughs> um, and goblins will stab you. Yeah, but they, I, I feel like there's a lot of, I still feel that a lot of that is association with Prace more than anything. Because it's not like orcs are just chomping randos. They're, you know, they they eat the people they fight. Who And who? Wouldn't? And they're really willing to abide by the norms of their culture, oh, yeah. even if they don't like it. They're, they're people, you know, <laughs> they're not monsters. If Kat dropped dead in the pit, that orc wouldn't start eating her. <laughs> Probably not. The, the, the biggest real world oppression that shows up in this that shows up in this is based on sex but it's not human it it's you know the goblins of course and so there's there's definitely it's definitely worth um interrogating that and discussing that a little bit i think once they are a bigger part of the story and once we learn more once in universe we learn more about the goblins and how their society functions i think that's going to be a, a good discussion for another day um but for now i think suffice to say that the exception being one specific culture on this entire continent who has a lot of things messed up about it and is clearly based on a yes there it's it's a sex divide but or gender divide no sex divide i mean yes we don't i i suppose we don't really we don't really know for sure but it it definitely feels sex because there is a biological component there major dimorphism right yeah, and so th- I, I, that's going to be worth discussing, but I think for now it's just worth keeping in mind that there is an exception, but I think that just helps the fact that that's so weird. It helps put the rest of the world in relief and how good it is, how chill it is about that kind of thing. Absolutely. And I'm sure we will 
each be bringing up points where this is refreshingly absent for the next however long this podcast is, a couple of weeks. Surely. One point absolutely not worth discussing, but that must be said, is I hate the spelling of enroll here. I hate it. Enroll has two L's, and I will fight anyone who disagrees. (laughs) I think this is a Britishism, and I hate it. A line I just wrote down is very satisfying, where we have, look, he said, I didn't mean to, I didn't meant to. Good job, E.E. Look, he said, I didn't meant to. It was just the way she was dressed. I mean, what kind of a decent woman goes about at night? I slit his throat. Like, that hits nicely. It does hit nicely. I, The way I had written that down is that this guy, she was asking for it himself right to death, which I just really appreciate. And I think this podcast has talked itself to death. At least this episode. <laughs> I agree. I think that is just about all the time we have today. And then some. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Rada as we discuss... Axes. Stillborn heroes. And fathers. We'll see you then. Bye. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Background ambiance for the epigraph was The Slaughtered Ox from Tabletop Audio. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Zakar Valaha. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music and the ambiance by tabletopaudio.com. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. Next week, Chapter 2, Invitation. <laughs>